Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Frequently, I have uh, thought of my life as being like chapters in a book. You finish a certain section of life, maybe you, you uh, in my case, uh, I got out of junior high school, finished the ninth grade, went on to high school. And high school was a chapter, and then I went to college, uh, you know, for one quarter and plunked out, and that was a short chapter. And then uh, I went in the uh, I went in the Air Force, uh, and that was a long, long, long chapter. Uh, and then came back and got married. But you you, you have certain markers that indicate that you have finished something and you're starting something else. And I, I think any journey, whether it be metaphorical or geographical, has certain milestones at which the, the traveler stops and looks back over the ground that has already been covered and takes satisfaction uh, before uh, satisfaction and progress before moving on. We've come to such a milestone in our study of the book of Romans. For four chapters, the Apostle Paul has been, as it were, laboring up the first great peak of the Himalayan range, which is the book of Romans. He has analyzed the desperate state of the human race in its rebellion against God. He has unveiled uh, the answer to its lost condition in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has explained the nature of the gospel uh, and has patiently answered all of the objections that he knows will be raised up against it. He has demonstrated that the gospel of a righteousness from God is received by faith and that that is taught in the Old Testament. And he proves that from the cases of Abraham, the great patriarch of Judaism and of the greatest king of Israel, David. And he concludes by saying, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only in the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. So the first four chapters of Romans, if you will, has been quite uh, uh, an invigorating, an arduous climb. And the, the peak that uh, Paul has scaled has been a mighty one. And now the apostle is going to discuss the immediate benefits of this God-given salvation and of the nature of of the Christian life that results from this gospel. But before he moves to the next great pinnacle, he takes a look back over the ground that he has covered and reviews his accomplishments. And I want to look at that in three parts. First, having proved that Abraham was saved by faith, and therefore all other saved people must be, Paul reviews the nature of that faith, using Abraham as an example. And that's the part we'll be looking at today. 
You didn't think we was going to cover all them three parts in one sermon, did you, Randy? No. Okay. All right. Secondly, he, uh, since the essence of true biblical faith is grounded in God, Paul reviews the character of God, uh, showing that the only true God is an adequate basis for faith. And Lord willing, we'll uh, look at that next week. And then finally, having explored these matters with regards to Abraham, who has been his chief example uh, of the Christian faith, Paul breaks away from Abraham and speaks of, about the Christian faith directly, focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, in renewing or in reviewing the nature of Abraham's faith, Paul highlights five of its most striking characteristics. The first important thing about Abraham's faith is that it was faith in God's promise. That's clear in verse 18, where one expression of the promise of Genesis 15 is quoted. But it is also a dominant theme throughout the latter half of Romans chapter 4, where the noun promise appears four times in verse 13, 14, 16, and 20. And the verb promised occurs once in verse 21. God made a multifaceted promise to Abraham. It involved personal blessing. It involved a land to be given to him and his posterity. And it involved blessing on his descendants. And most importantly, it involved a redeemer. One who would come uh, from Abraham who would be a redeemer not only of Jews but of Gentiles as well. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the first and most important characteristic of Abraham's faith is that it was faith in this promise. We, we look at, at uh, Genesis 15 and, and Paul's quoting of it uh, and the fact that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God, we're told, and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. And we think, well, that, that, that's just obvious. You know, that's not that important because it's just so obvious. But the truth of the matter is, it is neither obvious nor unimportant. It's not obvious because most of our natural thinking about faith is not objective. When people talk about faith, usually it is subjective. When they talk about faith, they're not really talking about faith with God as the object. They're talking about their feelings. Well, how do you know something's going to happen? Well, I've just got faith. You just got to have faith. If you just have faith, if you believe it, then it will happen. Because men have a tendency to think in subjective terms, which means that we are not God-centered in that matter, but man-centered. We, we think in a way where man is the sum of all things. Several years ago, uh, a very famous pastor uh, in America, uh, Robert Schuller, who was a pastor of a megachurch in California, wrote a book called The New Reformation. And in it he said that the reformers 
made a mistake because they were theocentric when they should have been anthrocentric. So he said they made their mistake because they centered on God and they should have been centered on man. That's blasphemy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everything must be centered on God. And if you look at, uh, if you look at books of quotations about faith, you see that the vast majority of thinkers, philosophers, intellectuals in the world have this subjective man-centered idea about faith. Uh, here are some that appear in Roger's International Thesaurus. The Roman poet Ovid, who lived from 43 to 18 BC said, or 18 AD, said, we are slow to believe what hurts when believed. I don't, I don't even know what that means. The epic poet Virgil, who lived from 70 to 19 BC wrote, they can because they think they can. The Roman playwright Terence, 185 to 159 B.C., said, Faith is as many opinions as men. A French philosopher declared, Nothing is so firmly believed as that which we least know. A Spanish-born American philosopher, George Santayana, spoke of faith as the brute necessity of believing something as long as life lasts. And then we have popular sayings by uh, popular preachers today who say, believe that you have it and you will have it. That I believe because it is impossible. Well, that, that may well be the power of positive thinking, but it is not faith. Because faith has its uh, as its objective, a belief in God. These sayings all have their root in the fact that they are grounded in man. And the ideas are subjective in quality. But Bible faith is grounded in God. And it's something that springs from the individual's encounter with God. Again, the, the fact that biblical faith is faith in God's promise is not unimportant because it is along these identical lines that we must believe if we are to be saved as Abraham was. We are not saved because we have a strong subjective faith that would focus the whole thing on us. We are saved because we believe the promises of God regarding salvation. We are saved because the promises of God are made known to us in the pages of the Bible. We are saved because we believe what God has promised. And, and, and that should be so obvious, but sadly, it is not. So a, a Christian faith, or the Christian faith, is a Bible faith. We are not saved because of our faith. We are saved because of the promise of God. And true faith is receiving these promises and believing them on the basis of God's character. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He believed God. And therefore, it was imputed to him, counted to him as righteousness. The second characteristic of Abraham's faith 
that it, it was based on what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the bare word of God and on nothing else whatsoever. You go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you find that God had promised Abraham many offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And he made that promise at a time when Abram had no children at all. Now, the situation appeared to be hopeless then. It was not quite hopeless, but it would get hopeless. Abraham was then 85 years old. Uh, 85 years old having a child. Yeah, that, yeah that, that doesn't work for most people. And he had yet to father a child uh, by Sarah. But you know the story of how Sarah gave him her handmaid, Hagar, and uh, he had a, a child by Hagar, Ishmael. Fourteen years later, at the time of the conception of Isaac, Abraham was unable physically to father a child. Biologically impossible. He had lived almost a century having no children. And it seemed that he and Sarah would die childless. I mean, yeah, of course. They're a hundred years old, of course they're going to die childless. And yet, here is God promising not only that he would have an heir, but that eventually he would have descendants that would be so innumerable that you couldn't count them. That's a redundancy, I realize, but I got a word there out before I realized it. His descendants were innumerable. They couldn't be counted. There you go. So here's my question. Where could Abraham find external support that would help him to believe this wild promise that God had given him? That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky? And the answer is nowhere. There was no such support. From the point of view of human experience, the situation was impossible. He had no prior examples of, of men in old age around him that had uh, sired children. So if Abraham believed God as he did, it was only because it was God who had made the promise. The same thing is true when we trust God for our salvation today. God says that he has given his son to die for us. So that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. What else in life can sustain you in believing such a promise except the bare words of God in the Bible? Apart from God's word, what would you know about eternal life? What would you know about any kind of salvation? Apart from God's word, we don't have anything, any information about eternal life or how to get it. The invisible world is hidden from us. No human being can tell us anything. So if we find salvation, it is by believing God's word, pure and simple. And let me say this again because it just keeps coming up and up. 
in the last couple of weeks, a very, very famous uh, lady who's a Bible teacher left the Southern Baptist Convention, and I don't know her. I assume she's a fine Christian lady, have no knowledge of, of her life at all. But for years, she has been claiming personal revelation. Oh, God told me. No, he did not. Let me tell you again, in case you didn't get it the first thousand times I said it. If, do you want to hear God talk to you? I'm going to tell you how right now. I'm going to tell you how you can hear God talk to you. Read your Bible. Oh, preacher, I want to hear God speak to me audibly. Read it out loud. That'll do it. Here are the words of God. Here are the words of eternal life. You want God to speak to you? He has. Read the Bible. Why would we take the word of man? Why would I believe someone who comes up to me and says, and many people have. Over the years that I've been in ministry, I've had well-meaning people. I don't think they're mean or ugly. I don't think they're heretics. I just think they're confused. But I've had them come to me and say, Preacher, God told me to have my first cousin's brother, sister's boys come preach here at North Athens. When can you schedule him? Uh, when God tells me. Okay, fair enough. They don't like that answer. I, I, I had a fellow not too long ago wanted to come uh, to church, and he, and he wanted to sing. And I, I said, no, I don't know you. Well, you mean if God, if I tell you that God told me to come there and sing, you wouldn't let me? No. I said, God hadn't told me. Why would your word from God be better than mine? I, I don't, listen. Again, I, I think these people are confused. I, I, I don't deny that there are impressions that we all get. About, I sense that this is what God wants me to do. I believe this is how God is leading me. But God has spoken through his word. You know, and if you come to me or if, if your mama comes to me and says, Preacher, after the service, God's given me a word to speak to this congregation. I won't talk to him. No, huh? you ain't. Not going to happen. Well, you'll hurt mama's feelings. I'd hurt my mama's feelings. We only have the Bible, people. But listen, that's enough. What God has said is true. Why would we need the words of man? What do I, why do I need Benny Hinn to tell me that God has told him something? I don't need that. I have... The Word of God. I don't need human experience to tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to listen to someone's testimony, but when someone starts telling me that God's told them something that's not in the Bible or it's extra revelation, do you realize that every time that someone says God speaks to them, they ought to write it down? But if that's the case, the world we're living in today You'd have a Bible you couldn't haul on 12 railroad cars. Because everybody in the country is around saying that God told them. God told me this. God told me that. Yeah. You, you know my theory on that. You've heard it again. You've heard it many times. You've been eating bad cheese. Don't do that at night. Because it will cause you to have these kind of visions. 
Abraham believed the bare word of God. Faith is content with the bare word of God because he is God. That's why I've told you time and again as well, one of my favorite songs that we sing, I love it, it's one of my favorites. It says this, Jesus loves me, this I know. How? The Bible tells me so. That's it. The bare word of God. The vitality of Abraham's faith, and therefore of all true faith, was greater even than this. For as Paul points out in the closing verses here of Romans 4, it was not a case of Abraham merely believing God in the absence of all external supports. He believed God when the external evidence was actually and sharply contrary to circumstance. I mean, there was no way that what God had said would happen was going to happen. Not humanly speaking. That's what it means when he says, in hope, he believed against hope. Another way of saying that was from the human perspective, it was hopeless. Couldn't happen. Not going to happen. But from the divine perspective, the perspective of faith, Abraham thought to himself, God has spoken. I'll believe it. All the physical evidence says no. God has spoken. I'll believe it. All the physical evidence says there's nothing after death. All the materialists, that's what they say. Read Sam Harris, read Richard Dawkins, you read any of the new atheists, read almost anyone today. After death, that's it. There's nothing else. There, there's nothing that comes after this life. And yet God has said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never, that means never. Do you know what eternal life means? It means forever. It means eternal. You receive eternal life at the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't lose it. It's forever. Life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You are joined at the moment of your salvation with the triune God. You will never, ever, 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 ever be separated from him. How do you know that, preacher Bob? The Bible tells me so. And in spite of the fact that all the physical evidence is to the contrary, I believe it. Abraham had no physical evidence to go on. He's 99 years old. He can't have he can't even have one child. I mean, he tries to argue with God and say, "Oh, let Ishmael live before you." And God says, no, no, I'm going to be a child with you and Sarah. So Abraham's faith has moved to believing that which is impossible because God says so. Well, look, look in verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead, which he, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. His body was dead. Sarah's womb was barren. No way. Abraham was aware of the hopelessness of the situation. And yet he believed God in spite of the circumstances. 
Moreover, this is what Genesis itself indicates. We go through life as believers, and things happen to us that happen to unbelievers. There's no difference. But how do we react to them? If a loved one dies, do you get angry at God? Do you get bitter? Do you say, well, God has not been good in this situation? What do you believe? Do you believe the circumstances? Or do you believe God? The Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? When tragedy comes, when heartbreak comes, when, when, when hurt comes that is so terrible, you think you will suffocate? Do you believe it then? Just because God says... This is what is true. The Word of God. No one should understand that I'm saying that faith is irrational. There's nothing more rational than believing God. But it does mean that faith always stands with God in His Word. That no matter what happens, we believe what the Bible says about God. And we believe the promises that God has made even when it appears foolish from a human perspective. The fourth characteristic of Abraham's faith is assurance. Paul says in a number of ways this is the case. In verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. Verse 21 is the, the, the chief statement, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Some other translations of the Bible are worth noting how they phrase this verse. The New English Bible speaks of a firm conviction. Philip says that Abraham was absolutely convinced. The New American Standard Bible says he was fully assured. That's an important point. True faith should always have this assurance. But how does faith achieve this in a world where the flesh is weak and circumstances are usually more powerful than we are? There's only one answer. True faith has assurance because it is directed neither to ourselves nor to our circumstances, but to God. We are weak. What did we sing this morning? The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Faith that is grounded in ourselves is always weak. Faith that is merely positive thinking will, will flounder when the circumstances are not positive. It will weaken, it will waver, and it will slip away. Just as Peter's faith wavered. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 14 when the disciples saw Jesus walking across the water and, and Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on the water to go to Jesus. What happened? 
The King James Version is interesting. It says he saw the wind. Well, you couldn't see the wind, of course, but he saw what it was doing, whipping up waves and billows, and he took his eyes off Jesus. He looked at his circumstances, and he began to sink. That's always going to happen. If we look to ourselves for our, for our strength, faith is grounded in the being and the character of God. And that faith will go from strength to strength because God is faithful. Why, it is, import, why is it important to know who God is? I, I've, I've said this many times before that most of the time worship we see as as nothing but emotions. Now, emotions are important. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, when I was young, I rarely ever, ever cried. And today, when we sang on Christ the solid rock I stand, I could, I could have just wept. What a wonderful thought that we stand on Christ the solid rock. Emotions are good. But listen, you got to know you can't worship a God you don't know, especially when the circumstances get tough. When death comes, when sickness comes, when financial ruin comes, when persecution comes, what are you going to do? What do I know about God? I know that He is righteous and He's good and He's faithful. And I know that He never hurts His children. I know that, <laughs> again, because the Bible tells me that. And if you don't know who God is, when the hard times come, you're going to falter. You're going to waver. You're going to weaken. Your faith cannot be in you. Your faith can't be in your knowledge. Your faith must be in God. But to put faith in God, you must have knowledge of him. One more characteristic of Abraham's faith that is extremely important, and that is the performance of his faith. It acts. Faith acts. Faith believes God. It acts decisively. In fact, if I had to define biblical faith in the least words possible, I would say faith is believing God's word and acting upon it. Faith is believing God's word and acting upon it. Now, don't ask me if that's original with me. I don't know. I got it in my notes. Could have got, could have stole it from anybody. I don't know, but I like it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with it. Okay? Did Abraham believe God? Of course he did. He believed God enough to engender the child of the promise when he was 99 years old. But I've often thought that even. In, in some ways an even greater act of faith on Abraham's part was announcing what he did. You remember when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, his name was Abram. And eh, some confusion about what that means. Could, exalted father, our father of a people. Now you imagine Abram has this name that means exalted father. Really? How many children you got, Abe? Well, I don't, I don't have any. And then finally, when he gets up 85 years old, oh, exalted father, father of a people. That's great. How many children you got, Abe? I got one. 
And then God comes to him when he's 99 years old and says to him, I'm going to give you a child. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the heaven. And by the way, you will no longer be called Abram, but Abraham, father of a multitude of peoples. Can you imagine the people who sniggered and laughed and giggled when Abraham told them what his name was now? Oh, don't call me Abram anymore. Call me Abraham. I'm no longer exalted father. Now I'm the father of a multitude of peoples. How many children you got, Abe? Just got one. one. One's coming, though. God told me one's coming. Abraham, do you really believe that? Yes, I do believe that. That's why I told you that God changed my name to Abraham. Because God will do exactly as he promised. Do you, do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that God is righteous? Do you really believe that he is holy? Do you really believe that everything that he does is righteous and holy and good? And that whatever he does is right and it will ultimately work for your good and his glory no matter what it is? he's promised in his word that that is true do you believe do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins that he was buried and they rose again the third day do you believe that by trusting him and repenting of sin that God will give to you eternal life life that you can never lose life that will give you a billion times a hundred billion years in glory and you'll just be started believe it believe it because God has promised it in his word believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved that's right our father